UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, howling in the street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Are we live? Okay, I mean, you hit this. Hey guys, welcome back to the Typical Skeptic channel. I have a really fascinating guest with me today. Um, someone that you guys have been working on for a long time. Um, someone whose work is tried and true and who has really come through the way. I would say with the scene on fire with information that we've never seen before. Um, out of any researcher that I've ever studied, like nobody has presented this information in this kind of fashion, especially when you're talking about like the Anunnaki and the, the theories that he proposes with the Anunnaki and who they actually were and their titles and stuff. And who I'm talking about is Jason Brashears of Archaics. Um, I, want to, I, I want to do a little bit more about his biography. Jason Brashears has offered seven books and a massive chronological timeline of world history demonstrating that we exist inside a mathematical construct he calls the simulacrum. His findings, data sets, and research can be found on his website, archaics.com. He is revealed in many of his 330 videos on YouTube and on other platforms, more and more evidence that we are in a unique situation of experiencing two distinct realities at the same time, the collective and the personal, that many of us live in the same world, but we are not in the same verse. And his uh, links, his YouTube channel and his uh Website is Archaics, and uh, I want to give him a big welcome to the show. Jason, thank you for joining me. How are you? Well, I'm pretty good, man. Thanks for having me. I know we uh, I know we scheduled this like a month ago, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think the gods didn't want it to happen because they gave you a power outage the other night. Everything, everything that they, they, they could do to, uh, to, to tamper with this, they did. But I, I, I want to ask you this um, to start off, like, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this. Like, how did you get into researching this esoteric knowledge? And if they've asked you that, how did how did it become to this degree where you've uncovered these amazing facts and you've dug deep into ancient texts that a lot of people can't even find or don't even know about? Well, <clears throat> you say a lot of people don't. Well, and that would be that would you're talking about mainstream. Um, yeah, but there's always been there's always been a minority among among academia that have had access to basically all this material. Uh, Yale University, Peabody Museum, uh, Ashmolean Museum, the uh, uh, the Bodleian Library in Europe. This is the, these are 
there's always been people that have had access to the information. And I do believe that most of the things that I have found were widely known at one time. And only in the past 150 years have they basically been forgotten or, or omitted. Similar, similar in the way to uh, conquerors of Russia had completely rewritten the entire European and, and Russian histories during the occupation period of the Soviets and uh, basically raised an entire generation of Russian children to believing in a falsified version of history. It's the same thing that the West did, but they did it around the same time to us. It's a, basically, it's a whitewashing of history. So I don't believe I found anything novel. I believe I, believe I found basically what was already previously known. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Like, who were some of the people that you went to when you dug into the text? Like, who do you look for, like, as, like, your sources, if you don't mind me asking? Like, this incredible information. Well, I mean, uh, when you read books from the 1940s or 50s, like by Emmanuel Velikovsky and Charles Hapgood and um, uh, Harold T. Wilkins is another really good one from that period, uh, and you find out they're citing people like Samuel Noah Kramer and Thor Heyerdahl. And you, you read Thor Heyerdahl and Samuel Noah, Noah Kramer and you find out who they're citing. And you and this is what I mean, this is what I refer to on my own channel is calling chasing the bibliography. When, when you it's it's basically just like a court of law. Before something can be presented to a court of law, there must be an established chain of custody. The court just can't accept anything uh, as material evidence for something. There has to be a chain of custody where, where a certain object or, or a piece of evidence had come from to make sure it hasn't been tampered with or falsified. Well, the same thing happens. That's what a bibliography is for. And you, when, you, when I read a book, it's very, very important that, that the bibliography is supported by uh, the, the historians or the, or, or the old authors that it claims to, to uh, have derived its material from. So, and this is what I do. I did it with Sitchin. When I read the Earth Chronicles of Zechariah Sitchin, I, I, mean, I went right through that man's bibliographies. And that's why I know the man was being very deceitful because he has read many of the things that other authors like Thor Heyerdahl and Samuel Noah Kramer and uh, Harold T. Wilkins and Albert T. Clay from uh, the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, these authors also studied Sumerian antiquities. They did not come to any conclusions, anything similar to Zechariah Sitchin. And, uh, and some of these men, this is what they did. They, they, were, they were true Sumerologists. So uh, Albert T. Clay is like one of the, uh, one of the undeclared uh, greatest scholars of all time. Uh, he's one of my personal heroes. His books are widely unknown. He wrote books on uh, sh basically showing how the entire Near East had been overrun by the Amuru, the, the, this Amorite culture that came in after a devastating series of events. Now, this devastating series of events is mentioned by Zechariah Sinchin, and he, does, he doesn't gloss over it. He cites the actual Sumerian Akkadian lamentation text and describes how all these Sumerian and Akkadian cities were laid waste. And even makes the necessary correlate about Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed at the exact same time, and Mohenjo-Daro, Larak, and the Harappan civilization of India, Pakistan. Sitchin did a very good job of that, but then, but then again, there's no reason to cover that up. That's a, that's a historical fact. Archaeologists have found these cities. They are laid waste as if they were destroyed from the sky. 
human skeletons have been excavated by Russian archaeologists that were still holding hands and their bodies were laying out in the streets. They don't know why, but these cities were not approached by carry-on creatures or other humans. To, they, other humans didn't come and loot them because the bodies were found where they had fallen down. People were holding hands and the radiation levels from Ahenjo-Daryl alone are 50 times the, what, what is normally found anywhere else. So uh, it's a genuine mystery. And it's in the lamentation text, this massive destruction. But it's a uh, that's something that I agree with with Sitchin, but I do not agree with Sitchin on this great fantastic uh, idea that he came up with about uh, he took all the pronouns of the Sumerian records and the Babylonian stories that are attached to the older Sumerian pronouns, and he built this fantastic narrative of these families of Sumerian gods and how they bickered and were contentious with each other and how they did all these things, and this is not what the historical record conveys. It conveys a post-cataclysm people who came who came from somewhere else, and the texts say they came from the land of Dilmun by way of Dilmun from the sea, meaning they were mariners. They came in fleets, and when they arrived, it was widely known that they came from somewhere else, but but just recently they had come from the island of Dilmun. It was like a way, a, a stopping point for them. And then they showed up and they built and they built the Sumerian infrastructure. And that's where basically history begins because, because human recorded history begins with literacy. And it was the Sumerians that introduced literacy into, into this area of the world, meaning it existed somewhere else, but not here. And, and that somewhere else would be the West. And this is what my research shows. My research is only following in the footsteps of men that were that were saying the exact same things in the 1870s, 1880s, and 1890s, that the civilizations of the old world actually came from the ancient Americas. That's so interesting, but I want to back up to the Sumerians for a second. Like, when you think about the Atrahasis, which is like, you know, the, that's the Sumerian creation epic, a, a big, that's a big one, right? Um they talk about that they genetic that Anki genetically modifies humans and that. Do you think there was some? I mean, do you think there was some tampering of our DNA, or do you think that never none of that ever happened? Well, <clears throat> I think that we can discuss uh, genetic manip manipulation, uh, alteration of human genome, and uh, the creation of hybrids or hybrid species for survival. Uh, interests, uh, maybe a maybe maybe a subterrestrial race that has been underground for thousands of years, or for whatever reasons they want to also begin having their offspring on the surface, but they know their offspring won't survive, so they basically create hybrids between those who are dwelling on the surface who produce the necessary me uh, melatonin and and they create a hybrid between them when they've been underground for centuries, maybe millennia, and those who are dwelling on the surface all along. Because deep underground, they're always safe. Their infrastructure is intact. There's nothing to worry about. On the surface is where all the danger is. But because they've been underground for so long, and now the sun hasn't touched them, and their eyes are icy blue and emerald green, and, and their skin is almost translucent white, and they look totally different than other humans that have been on the surface for thousands of years, we have this, the birth of this, of this, of this, uh, 
this species of human. They're human too, but they're so different than any other human and their infrastructure is intact, meaning they have technology, they have technolithic structures, they have, they have sciences, they have arithmetic, mathematics. They're not living in Neolithic uh, style like those on the surface who have been repeatedly reset through cataclysms and resets and mud floods. And, and the people on the surface have, have been going through it. And they basically live totem societies uh, and they're not like the technologically advanced people who have who have biospheres in the underworld. This is the true origin of the Anunnaki. This is why in the in the old Akkadian texts, the Anunnaki were described as coming from the Apsu, which means their ultimate origin derived from the deep. The deep was not a reference to the sea. They were talking about the world, the world underneath us. In the Sumerian cosmology, it was widely recognized that there were three worlds that could be inhabited. One was the sky, one was the surface of the world, and one was the absolute, the deep. And it's all. And that's interesting. The, 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 he was from tabs, right? In the tablets, they, they say that exact words. They, I, I remember reading it like like as clear as day. That so that's so interesting. Like, um, but do you think they would leave it hidden like that, like so that people wouldn't know that they were from the underground? Well. Well, uh, I don't think I don't. I, OK, I don't think it was a conspiracy. I don't think it was a conspiracy to hide information. Like that. I mean, imagine let, let me run. Let me run a scenario by you really fast that you could instantly transpose to the ancient world. Let's say let's say 500,000 Americans split into three groups because we have three mega metropolises deep underground that have their own infrastructures, their own gardening, they have their own own light, they have they got their own uh, uh, luminous, luminescent mold and fungi, uh, whole whole caverns full of produce that we've learned to grow under ultraviolet lights, not needing the sun. Uh, we've created our own biospheres, whole districts for for late underground lakes and freshwater, sweet water. Uh, um, we've got everything down there, and we, and we divide everything. Let's just say that happens. We divide everything. Five hundred thousand people just split into three groups. And they do that because they don't know if all three cities underground are going to survive the next cataclysm. But they know by their by virtue of their sciences when that cataclysm is going to occur. They've always known the timeline. So when it occurs and they go through this whole cataclysm, let's say all three of those cities cities survived. When they when they come back out four, five, maybe ten years after the cataclysm and things have settled down, they already know that everybody on the surface world has been knocked back to the Neolithic. They already know if they find any evidence of infrastructure or technology, it's going to be some Mad Max steampunk type stuff. It's not going to be anything on par with what they've got. Now, they also know that they don't even make up 0.01% of the human surviving population on the surface. So they've got to be careful, even though they have superior technology, even though they have everything they need. If they send out parties to go out, they're also leaving their, their paradise, basically a walled enclosure, an Eden is a paradise. They're basically leaving their paradise unprotected. 
So they've got their families, their children, their their descendants. Everybody, everybody's in, in this uh, Eden, this this fortified city underground. This is the background story to Genesis. This is what was really going on. This is why the gods could only threaten in Genesis that mankind was going to die. Couldn't actually do anything because they were underground and mankind was on the surface. That's why mankind was mankind was the Adamu were basically held held into subservience by threat. And uh, this is when the when the serpent, the benefactor, appeared and basically told them it was all BS. This is what started the entire chronology that we're in right now. Now, it was after a cataclysm, and it was because people in the underworld were trying to protect their interests. And the, to protect their interests, they had to control those on the surface. To control that many on the surface, when you're only 0.01% of the population, but you are 100% of the infrastructure and technology, then it's, it's, a, it's, a, really, it's a really tenuous situation. Because even with all that technology, you're not going to be able to control the masses. There's too many of them, even though they're living in the Neolithic. So there was there was concessions made, but the easiest way to do to the easiest way to control a mass population, even if it is more primitive than you, is by disinformation. And then in history has bore this out. We all know the story of Hernan Cortez. And if it wasn't for the Aztec belief that he was the return Quetzalcoatl, he would have never conquered 2.2 million Aztec braves with 600 conquistadors. It would have never happened. So the same thing with Pizarro, the same thing with, with the Inca in, in, in the South. Had they not believed in the return of Votan, in the return of of uh, of Viracocha, if it had not been that the Spaniards with their long beards and silver armor actually looked like the, the return of their old old gods, then they would have never been able to pull off what they pulled off during the Spanish conquistador uh, uh, period. This is the exact same thing happened four 4,500 years ago with the Sumerians. A very small group with technologically advanced stuff came in and they basically allowed the population to regard them as gods because it allowed them to move freely among those people. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. So um, it gets to a point where our civilization gets like to, to where we realize that like the, the gigs up when we know we know something like there's a point where we tried to escape the simulation right and then you talk about that in the tower of babel incident i was wondering if you could talk about that and exactly how you, you the, the the characters you line them up like and you said anki was enoch and marduk was Nimrod. that's so interesting i'd love to hear about that too because i i want to know the background of these characters because i love history Yes, yeah, so a lot of people get offended because a lot of a lot of people who who basically hold themselves as Sumerian scholars because they have read and studied and memorized the works of Zechariah Sitchin, they get offended when when I when I tell them that Enoch is is Enki, but they're not understanding that we're talking about two different cultures at two different time periods remembering the same person. It's the exact same thing with Hermes. There's three different Hermes in the traditional records, and all three of them were three distinct, very different personalities. But but they all have basically had the same life. They were remembered by different different phases of culture. Enki is, is the oldest, but the Jewish scribes in Babylonia, when they first come into contact with uh, the Babylonian histories, uh, this is the this and this is where the expertise of Albert T. Clay, Clay comes in, who, who who basically makes he 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 allows the reader to understand his books. He's from the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, but he allows the reader to understand by his erudition that 
what we have is Near Eastern records weren't just, it wasn't a simple compartmentalization of Sumerian text, Sumerian cuneiform, then Akkadian cuneiform, then uh, then the Babylonian, the Syrian cuneiforms. It's not as simple as that because the, the Akkadians didn't quite understand the sophistication of the Sumerian logographs. So many Sumerian words are left untranslated in Akkadian texts. But in Babylonian texts, we have a different story. We have scribes that were very haughty, and they were turning the, uh, the Anuna, which were humans of technological sophistication, uh, priorly, they, the Babylonians were the one that invented the word Anunnaki. It is not a Sumerian word. It was never used in Sumerian texts. The Anuna were a people. By the time the Babylonians emerged after the cataclysm, which was the great flood cataclysm, the day the sky fell, the collapse of the vapor canopy, all this is the same event. So when this, uh, when this occurred, then the Babylonian dynasty emerged within 250 years, and the Babylonians were quickly rewriting all the old pre-flood texts, the pre-cataclysm texts. But when they did so, they had badly demonized uh, the Anuna into the Anunnaki and turned them into deities and gods. Control They controlled the weather. They controlled the destinies. They controlled uh, physical phenomena. They had to be sacrificed to to appease them because they were angry. It was basically a, a more primitive it was it was more primitive humans regarding a technologically advanced superior race of humans uh, about a thousand years earlier. So everything had become contaminated. Then we had a breath of fresh air, and this was the invasion of the Amuru. Right after 1849 BC, when Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, Larek, Zeboam, Mohenjo-Daro, the Sumerian cities, when they were all wiped off the map, for whatever happened, it was the year 2046 of the Old World's calendar, which parallels our soon approaching 2046. But in the Old World's calendar, it was 2046, which, was our, which is our 1849 BC. This is when the Lamentation text of Zechariah Sitchin come into fall. This is when this massive destruction occurred. When this destruction occurred, within two years, a new group of people came from the West. They were called Westerners by everybody. They, they overran Northern Egypt, which is called Lower Egypt, the Great Period, uh, Pyramid area. And they set up dynasties at the same time in Hattusis, which is the Hitt Hittite Anatolia. Also at Urartu, they, 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 they established their dominance. They established their dominance all throughout Phoenicia, Tyre, Sidon, all the way through Canaan, the cities of the giants of Bashan, the cities of the giants of Argob. They took control of the Zuzums, the Zamzumums, the Rephaims were allied to them, and the Anakims were their soldier force. The Anakims are called the Tamahu on Egyptian monuments, and it shows them they have very, very white alabaster skin. They had huge eyes. They, they, they wore their hair in, in giant locks, and they were very distinguished for, they had a trait, a cultural trait that showed the warrior aristocracy. They wore, they wore collars around their necks to show their rank. This is why in a lot of old Bible dictionaries, when you look up Anak, it's says collar. The translation is collar or long neck. This is a very old trick. And, and, and to get this to get this history, to understand this culture and how they were regarded as giants, 
is because you have to read the old books of Robert Graves and the White Goddess, the Greek myths. You've got to read Gerald Massey, who was writing about these things in the 1880s and 1890s. These men did not have access to the internet. Therefore, their erudition was off the charts. There are no authors, researchers, and writers today who, and I include myself among the many, that are even on par with these men. These men were recording historical data and events, and their chains of custody on the information is phenomenal. Uh, all the different texts that they cite going back into the ancient world. But this, these Amuru, these Westerners took over the Near East. They marched all the way to Babylon and took it without a fight. And they found this guy who had been alive for almost 180 years. And he's famous. He's mentioned in, in, in records all throughout the Near East. He's got many names. But he was the king of Babylon at the time when the Tower of Babel incident occurred, when he had attempted to bring his people together and build a structure to try to escape. It wasn't, it wasn't the simplified version that you, you received from Judeo-Christianity. That, that is an oversimplification. They didn't build a tower up to heaven. They weren't trying to do that. They built a structure, and knowing that if they could ever activate that structure, they could, they could then breach heaven. They could escape because they basically understood that they were in a they were in a contained area. The whole Tower of Babel story admits all these elements. These weren't gods that were talking among themselves. These were humans. They were overseers over the simulacrum that was seeing. They were basically observing that the human collective inside the experiment was now catching on that they were inside of an experiment. So they had to do something because they were they were already being proactive. And the Tower of Babel story is also an oversimplification. Although it's a veiled threat in the Old Testament to humanity not, not to try and escape, uh, the oversimplification is the fact that the Tower of Babel story is an overlay. The real story behind it is the building of the Great Pyramid of Egypt. I'd love to hear about that. Like, How is the, the Great Pyramid of Egypt involved? That's so interesting. Well, the... Uh, Sitchin also did a pretty good job of isolating the particulars in the Sumerian records that show like like uh, the word Eker, divine mountain, actually applied to the Great yeah. Pyramid. He did a good job. He did a good job on that. And that the original tablets of destinies that was so famous in the old Akkadian records that was referring to the Sumerian traditions. He was really good at, at elucidating on those points because the Tablet of Destinies was a component that was used in the Digir. The, the Digir was this was this chamber inside the Ikur. It's a chamber inside this divine mountain. And this Tablet of Destinies was, was taken out and stolen and hidden, and no one knows what happens to it. But it, it's like the operations console to make the Great Pyramid function the way it is supposed to function. During Sumerian times, somebody went in there and took that Tablet of Destinies out, which is that CPU. We, 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 we can just use the term CPU because that's what it would be for us, Central Processing Unit. The yeah command console for whatever whatever a computer is supposed to function, whatever it's supposed to do. Well, the story is that some figure named Zhu, Z-U, and we know that wasn't his real name. This is just how it was passed down to us. Zhu uh, is related to something called the Thunderbird. Now, I know this is the Phoenix, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother line of research there. But 
the zoo zoo was connected to something called the Thunderbird, and zoo came and when nobody was paying attention, he stole the, the tablet of destinies out of the Ecur, and that's where all the problems for humanity followed after that. Everything that humanity saw that was the pan that was the true Pandora's box. The only reason we have a story about Pandora's box and Pandora being a, a uh, female is because it was exactly during those patriarchal times that the patriarchies were all were, that were basically forcing into submission all the matriarchal old, older Neolithic cultures. And this happened when the sky fell. Because when the sky fell, it was the birth of the, this is what, what started all the birth of the sun calendars. This is the great flood. Is this after the vapor canopy? This is the collapse of the vapor canopy. Yes, the collapse of the vapor canopy is what you know of as the Great Flood. But it was also the exact time in the ancient Americas that all the sun calendars began because the first time anybody saw the sun in the sky, the, the sky had been a dark purple light up until this time. And it was a uh, and um, uh, I've, I've got a lot of videos on the vapor canopy and explaining how how all the plants and animals and even people were much larger under the vapor canopy because uh, as scientists in Texas have already shown in, in their own artificial biosphere under under ultraviolet purple light you can make things grow to astonishing sizes and even live three times longer they've already done this in Texas recently so imagine imagine a vapor canopy over the entire world. Well, we really don't have to imagine it. All we have to do is look at the fossil record. Everything was bigger. Trees were 400 feet tall. Animals were gigantic. And humans were gigantic. And when we found evidence of this all, all over the world. And so when you put humans back to their proper height, not to their present height, none of the none of the megalithic architecture from the ancient world would be mysterious anymore. Yeah. What I wanted to ask you, when do we start to, when, I, I, I'm trying to ask you about the Phoenix because I'm so interested in it. Like, I know it's every 138 years, right? But, um, well, don't, when did don't, you know, first don't confuse, don't, uh, let me answer, let me answer both questions. First of all, I get a lot of people on my channel too. They're triggered when they, they come across the Phoenix data and they don't realize how complex it really is. It's not, it's it's not a worldwide cataclysmic phenomenon every 138 years. That's not how it operates. Nothing would be nothing would survive that. Oh, we would stay Neolithic. We would stay we would stay troglodytes the whole time. That's not how it works. Oh, the it see it seems to act with discretion. It will it will it will pass a certain continent five or six times, which is 138 times four or five or six times, and then come back and visit such destruction in that, on that one continent, but it will leave the rest of the world alone. It all, it, it's very discretionary. It's not something that happens. It's only four times in recorded history did it ever affect the entire world at the same time, but never back to back. There's always time periods. So it, Every 138 years, yes, we see we see evidence of of the Phoenix presence. We see the red the red muds, the red rains. We see uh, uh, all kinds of weird atmospheric uh, and visible phenomena. Many times, many times, like in 384 A.D., uh, 246 A.D., 522 A.D., there's three of them back to back. 
we saw we saw there's there's records of actual visible phenomena a great fiery looking dragon appearing in the sky sometimes it's a it's a pillar of flames high in the sky uh sometimes it's something that brings a vast darkness that lasts many years like in 522 uh you know other times it appears every 138 years but it only it only really basically devastates highly localized areas but all in the same region uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, when it when it appeared in 1687 BC, it was worldwide. Uh, 1687 BC was terrible. It was, as a matter of fact, there's a guy that wrote an entire book named W. J. Perry. Uh, he wrote the Archaic Civilization: Children of the Sun. His 550-page book is dedicated only to one year in history, and that is 1687 BC. And that was a Phoenix year. It's called the Ogygian Deluge, and it was terrible. This is 552 years after the Great Flood when the vapor canopy fell, long after the Sumerians were gone. Now, in 1687 BC, this, this happened. It was devastating. But 138 years later, in 1549 BC, it, we only have records of the Cyclades region being aired out and Egyptians seeing in a distance a vast darkness over the Cyclades. But we have Castleton, a historian who wrote about this, this devastation that affected this all these Mediterranean islands at the same time. But it was highly localized. It didn't affect the rest of the world. Then 138 years later, again in 1411, we have the entire Mediterranean world recording that it's in the sky. But only certain cities and areas actually had a bad time of it. Then 138 years later, uh, what was that, 14, we have it in 1273 B.C. In 1273 BC, again, we have Assyrian kings that are, are recording the event in the sky at the same time that Atreus of the of the uh, um, Atreus of Argos actually predicts it's going to come, and it does. And because of this prediction and, and how true it was, he won the the kingship over his brother for the house of Atreus over Argos, which was a major city at the time. But 138 years later, the entire Mediterranean area in 1135 BC was wiped out again. Now this is 552 years after the last large-scale wipeout, which was in 1687 BC, the Ogygian Deluge, which was 552 years after the Great Flood. 552 is 138 times 4. So it, it acts with discretion. It doesn't wipe everything out every 138 years. It just shows back up every 138 years. It just keeps coming. You know, I have charts, books, posts. I got some, my, own, my own subscribers have seen, they're overwhelmed with information on the Phoenix. But the, uh, the Phoenix was not unknown to the Sumerians. It's not unknown. Uh, Zechariah Sitchin, again, I, I, another thing I agree with Zechariah Sitchin is the mass vanishing of the Anuna you know, right before 2653 B.C. He, he cites the, how mysterious this is. Zechariah Sitchin, to his credit, doesn't explain why they vanished. He just says a mass vanishing was at this period of time, but he also records that for whatever reasons, he doesn't know what it was. But he's very honest when he says that about this time, 2653 B.C., there was a massive destruction throughout the Near East. He doesn't know anything about the Phoenix. He didn't, Zechariah Sitchin doesn't know anything about the Phoenix holography, the 138-year periodicity of this phenomenon or anything. So I found that very valuable about his material. My, 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 my critiquing of, 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 of Zechariah Sitchin isn't so much his historical deal. It's, it's the translation of certain words to make you, to make, he's forcing the term rocket 
on there when the word shim never meant anything but name and monument. He's forcing the he's forcing the interpretation of rocket, and this is why academia will not follow Zechariah Sitchin. But he's forcing the the ET scenario where they came from the stars in the sky and all that. When all the evidence from the ancient world is that they came from underground after a cataclysm. You know, this is a even in the Judaic version, man, there's many references not to the watchers appearing from the stars, but from appearing out of a mountain. So uh, and, and even in the uh, the book of Adam and Eve, in the 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 uh, pseudepigraphical works of Alexandria, Egypt, the references are not to the sky when it refers to Satan and the fallen angels and and and, and uh, the people before the flood being influenced by gods that came in the flesh and had sex with human women and gave birth to a new a new race of, of humans and all hybrids. It says the references are never to the sky. They are to caves, cave systems and mountains. So um, this is my, that's my problem with Sitchin. Sitchin took cognitive leaps that weren't there, and he and he expects us to take them too when the evidence shows otherwise. Yeah, so I see what you're saying. Like even if he wrote sources, he might have sourced the tablet, but ex, but put his own expansions on whatever he thought that tablet meant, right? So like he could right, use a right. source, but he just put his right. own interpretation on it or his own spin on it, right? Yeah, well, see, let, let me give you a perfect example. Let me give you a perfect example, man. Okay, Enoch is also called Ea, Ea, all right? They're the exact same individual, two different titles from two different time periods. Zechariah Sitchin is very careful to let his readers understand that the later Babylonian translations translated Ea as Oannes. It's O-A-N-N-E-S, now, Sitchin makes the connection then. This is where the dishonesty comes from. Sitchin makes the connection that Enki, Ea, and Oannes are the same individual. So he shows the sources, shows the translations, and he's absolutely correct. I have no problem with his interpretation of that because he's showing the same individual through Sumerian translation, Akkadian translation, Babylonian Semitic. So I'm on board with that. Here's where the deception comes in. His narrative of Enki is that Enki came from the sky, from space, after coming from the outer solar system and coming all the way through the planets, arriving to Earth, and Earth was covered with much water, and, and Enki descends, and he paints the picture that, it, that Enki is arriving with 50, 50 of the of the Anuna with him in a ship, and they lower to Earth. This is the, this is the, the picture Zechariah Sitchin wants you to believe. But later in his own writings, he had admits what Babylonian tradition has always said. All the way from the days of Berossus, we still have the writings with us today that Oannes, o Oannes was, a, was a navigator who arrived by ship from the sea. This is exactly what is said of Means when he, when, when he you know, Zechariah Sitchin calls Means Nidaru. He was also one, one of the original gods that arrived by a fleet to the shores of ancient Egypt. Oani, he, he makes the connection between Oannes and, and the Nidaru, between Oannes and Means. He's basically saying that here are, here are the Sumerian gods arriving by fleets of ships. The Oannes narrative is that Oannes emerged from the ocean. And came. And many other writers say, well, that just means he arrived by ship. The same thing is said of Cecrops. When Cecrops arrived to ancient Athens and built Athens, when he when he came from Egypt, he arrived from the sea. Now, these are uh, um, 
a lot of these stories claim that they came in the Greek versions came with the gastrochores. Well, the gastrochores were depicted as gods, but they had a hundred arms and they came from the sea. Listen, we just use our common sense. This is a primitive people who are already inhabited uh, the Achaean region of the Peloponnesus. And they looked out and one day they saw the, these giant things that looked like monsters with, with oars. And they called them gastrochores because they had a hundred hands. And <clears throat> this is the story that's told over and over and over. And it always goes back to basically civilizations uh civilization builders arriving to more primitive coasts by ship whole fleets this is the whole story of barosas and, and oannes oannes came from the sea but sitchin but sitchin paints the picture that inky came from the sky you can't claim that inky came from space on a spaceship with with 50 of his uh, Anunnaki brothers, if you're also going to admit in your own books that Enki is Oannes. If you're going to admit they're the same individual, then you have to go by what the ancients said about that second individual. He arrived, they arrived from the sea. So these little deceptions right here are very easily overlooked in, in Sitchin's writings because his writings are so prolific. You got to get through nine different books, and each book is pretty damn sizable. So it's a uh, this is why I have a lot of I I could go on and on about Sitchin, but there's really no reason to because there's no reason to sit here and and try to prove a negative. I don't need to I don't I don't need to prove what doesn't exist. No, I, I, I want to tell you what does. I know, I, but I just have one more question on that because you brought it up. I, I like, I was thinking, sure. what do you think of the wars of gods and men? Because, like, because that's a good book, but I can see where he might have taken liberties because he's trying to say that Egyptian gods are related to Anuna, and that's probably not the case, right? Or is it? Well, it's really, it's really hard to to talk about Sitchin's works because we're talking about somebody. It's very difficult for me to convey historical material on a on, on a false template. Let me give you an example. Okay, yeah. my own research, the archaic research, only goes back to fifty two thirty nine BC, and I won't entertain anything before that because human recorded history only goes back that far. We don't have any writing human writings that date before the thirty fifth century BC. But I can go back to fifty two thirty nine BC simply because of a calendars that were existing before the flood, we have records of those today. If very few people realize most of the calendars from the old world all started during the vapor canopy. The Mayan, the Quiche, the Zapotec, the, the Olmec calendar, the Egyptian short and long chronology, the Sumerian the Sumerian calendar, the Oralind, the calendar that's given to us in the Oralind manuscript of the, of the Dutch. Uh, let's see, the, the Jewish calendar the, all these different calendars started at that period. They didn't start after the flood. They started during the vapor canopy world before the flood. And they didn't start the year that of their inception. They started and then were backdated. So we have the years that, that, that were claimed to be the begin dates. Like the Mayan long count was 3113 BC. And then 3173 BC was the Olmec calendar. I think uh, 3673 was the Jewish calendar. 3671 was the begin the first year of the Jewish calendar before I mean before it was corrupted uh, during the Bar Kokhba rebellion of 135 uh, AD. But anyway, well, my point is this. I can go back to 5239 BC because we have three different markers from the 
pre-flood world that show a 600-year period. And then the admission that the that the flood happened in the fifth turning. So we have the birth of Noah, 2839 BC, 600 years before the Great Flood. The Great Flood was a Phoenix episode in 2239 BC. So it's really easy to extrapolate 3,000 years before the flood is 5239 BC. 3,000 years is divided perfectly by 600 five times. This is why we get this, this Sumerian calendar symbol of a pentagram that shows up everywhere in the ancient world, considered, considered the Dingir. It was a divine calendar. Now, this, uh, we know every 600-year period, it's the exact same period. When in the book of Genesis, Enoch appears in the uh, 35th century BC in the Genesis narrative. The pre-flood world was 1656 years. It's very easy to calculate because year one would have been 3895 BC. That means 456 years later is, is, uh, um, is the year 456 Annus Mundi. But in our BC calendar, it's 3439 BC. 3439 BC is precisely 600 years after the birth of Noah in 2839 BC. And it's 600 years after the, the, the Anunnaki uh, calendar marks the what's called the capture of Luna. The capture of Luna was when the moon was captured in our orbit. Now, before, before anybody gets triggered about me saying the word orbit, you have to understand there are we're talking about a simulated stellar sphere. We're talking about a sky that is absolutely simulated. And what we're looking up in the night sky isn't an actual visual field that's 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 there. It's hiding something else. And the moon is a part of that architecture that is hiding something. It's a super construction up there. This is what the Phoenix weapon is as well. It's not an intruder world. It's not a planet. The Phoenix, the Phoenix weapon that appears and is activated every 138 years through human history is 100% a construction, a super construction. It has nothing to do with uh, with uh, uh, some intruder world. This used to be my, my belief years ago. I don't believe that anymore. It's too mathematically perfect. But uh, but yeah, that's my say. I can't deal with Sitchin because Sitchin measures Sumerian history in two in hundreds of thousands of years. But I have already shown on my own channel. I've shown that in my own channel over and over. And my my own subs they. I've met their satisfaction. I've cited so many different Sumerologists that show that the word Shar that is used by Zechariah Sitchin was the same word that was also used to measure how much cargo or how much wine or bushels of barley that ship captains had aboard their ships. This means that Shar was a unit of measurement. It did not mean year. So when we return the Sumerian, the Sumerian dating chronology back to its original fundamentals, which was the counting of the stellosphere, which was the turnings of the stars around the eye of the dragon, this is one single day. The ancients counted the revolutions of the stars. They did not count the sun. There were no solar calendars during the Sumerian times. Those were only entered later during the Babylonian times after all those cities were laid waste in 1849 BC when the Amuru appeared, the Westerners. But yeah, Zechariah Sitchin, it's hard for me to explain this because Zechariah Sitchin is using a system that makes you believe that cities were populated 200,000 years ago right here on Earth. And that's not how the Sumerians counted time. Just like the Orlin manuscript and so many other ancient sources say, days were the only ways that were counted. And this is why all the Sumerian 
king's list, all the Sumerian dates, everything in later Babylonian history is all divisible by 360 because it was 360 days made the old year, but the old but the old years did, weren't really factored until after the vapor canopy fell. Once they could see the sun passing across the sky, that's when they changed their calendars to solar. That's so interesting. A subscriber, she's on your channel and she's on mine, Boomster. She wanted to ask you, did you ever read John B. Pinella's books, The Divine Secret Garden and The Time Loop Chronicles? I've never even heard of them. They're not, okay. they're not in my bibliography. Okay. Yeah. I just wonder if I posted my. Yeah, I posted my bibliography on Facebook just today. It's pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of all the nonfiction books I read over a 20 year period. Let me ask you this. Like, when did you start realizing that? Because I see it too, that we're in some kind of simulation. When did you start putting that idea together? And then when did you come up with the theory on AIX? Because I think that's a brilliant theory. And, um, you know, I, I totally see it. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's obvious we're in some kind of construct, right? I, I mean, I think we would have to be crazy to not well, think so at this point. There's a, there's a mystic, a, a philosopher and a mystic named Franz Boas in the 1890s. Uh, he made a statement in one of his books. He said, record enough facts and the answers will fall to you like ripe fruit. Now, that quote is stuck in my mind for years because it's exactly what I did. It's a... Uh, I can't, I'm not able, I'm not able to compartmentalize my beliefs. Every single piece of data that I come into contact with has to be assimilated into my paradigm, or I must have that. I must have very good, valid reasons to discard it because I never want to be accused of practicing exclusions. So uh, that's something Charles Fort was big on too, practicing exclusions. Uh, Charles Fort said that, uh, who would not be a master marksman if only his hits were recorded? So applying these philosophies to my research, I said, I amassed such a massive amount of research and I, and I had all these files divided. I basically researched my, myself right out of the Southern Baptist paradigm. I acquired so much data that it, I just woke up one morning and I knew, you know what? There is no way. I cannot ignore the weight of all this data and and uh, believe all this. So that led me to books by Neil, Neil Freer. That led me to books by, by Jack Berenger. These two men are very little known. They're published authors, but they have written more and better things about the Anunnaki than Zechariah Sitchin ever has. Uh, they're, 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 their works are just not very popular. They're, these guys are deep these guys are very deep thinkers, and you're going to be shocked when you read their material, especially Neil Freer. When you read the book Breaking the God Spell, you will think you have just read some type of major, massive uh, collegiate thesis. And it's all about the Anunnaki and their control mechanisms, how, how the whole Anunnaki story was used as a control mechanism over humanity. It is fantastic. Gerald so, used to bring that uh, up. Neil Gerald used to bring that up. That, 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 I, I, I didn't no. know about it, though. I didn't know who wrote it. The Breaking the God Spell book. Yeah. I, I've got to get that. I've heard it's amazing. It's a paperback, and you can get it from a 1-800-700-TREE. Uh, he provides the paperback. He he's the actual publisher of Neil Freer, but uh, 
uh, Neil Freer, Jack Berenger. I started reading Otto Van Binder and, and Jacques Vallée, Charles Fort. So now, now that now that I've broken free of my Southern Baptist indoctrination, I'm able to assess the data with a clean slate. I'm not programmed to interpret it in a certain way. So I, I, I fall in love with, with Eric Von Daniken. And Eric Von Daniken leads me into Zechariah Sitchin. And I read everything about Zechariah Sitchin. And I'm falling in love with all this. However, I have never been able to accept at face value a writer's assertions. I have always had the trait of getting my catalogs out and ordering the books that are in the bibliographies of the books I read. So when I'm reading Sitchin, I decide, man, I'm going to read this. The Cities of Bashan. Oh, yeah, written in 1890s. I'm going to order that. And I'm going to read this. Oh, Samuel Noah Kramer, Maureen Gallery Kovacs. I'm going to order these books. And that's what I did. And that's when I began to realize that the, the, the story is far more complex than we've been told. And that the Earth Chronicles of Sitchin is really whitewashing over a bunch of evidence that's contrary to what Sitchin is putting out. So... Well, I started realizing, man, this is really complex. I started researching calendars and, and timekeeping systems, and I made all these massive discoveries that I've published on my own channel. As a matter of fact, it was calendars and is the reason why I, I was published by Booktree. I had basically overwhelmed the editors of Booktree with so much data and showed them, hey, look, this is what I do. This is a, this is the research I'm doing. I'm looking for a publisher. I'm a convicted felon. I'm still in prison. I understand if you don't want to, but I'm looking for somebody to work with now. So upon my release, you'll publish my books. Well, they waited about seven, eight months and got back with me and started publishing. They published six of my books now, publishing the seventh right now. There's a uh, there's a paperback there's a paperback edition of Awaken the Immortal Within coming out real soon. It's already been edited. It's a, it should be on press pretty quick, but. I've never needed another publisher. Everything I write, they publish. So it's a uh, yeah. Uh, that worked out just just right. But concerning Zechariah Sitchin, you have you, you, it. He tells a beautiful story. But my main issue, my main issue is that none of these events happened hundreds of thousands of years ago. Because in the span of hundreds of thousands of years, there would have been fifteen or twenty great floods. One great flood would have never mattered. And none of these cities like Bad Tabira, Shurapak, Larrick, none of these cities would have been hundreds of thousands of years old. Nothing. So I even drew a chart for people on my channel. And once you see the chart, it becomes so ridiculous to even assume Zechariah Sitchin is right. I drew a chart showing the whole, all of recorded history fits in this very small period. But way over here, feet, I'm talking about several feet this way, is where... Zechariah Sitchin's claiming all these cities began a civilization and the world before the flood began, the arrival, the arrival of Inki, you know, uh, 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 432,000 years before the flood. There is nothing. There is nothing in all the annals of the world that would make a 432,000 year, year period important to anything else. There's nothing that would have happened half a million years ago that would have any relevance to us today at all there's nothing there's no cities that would remain whole mountain ranges would have disappeared it's a the whole assertion is ridiculous and it's so easily disproven because eudoxus gives us the clue 24 centuries ago he tells us how the ancients calculated time they counted the stars as they went around alpha draconis the eye of the dragon and when the stars made one revolution 
The evening and the morning was the first day. That's the same thing Genesis tells us how they counted time before the flood. The evening and the morning was the first day. Evening, morning, the morning was the second day. Evening and the morning was, was the third day. The night always came before the day. Just like the vapor canopy came before the sun. It was the darkness before the dawn. It's a, Everything fits perfectly once you reinterpret, reinterpret Zechariah Sitchin's histories by using the real Sumerian uh, factors of calculation, not Zechariah Sitchin's interpretation. So was uh, was uh, Noah still the same as Untapishtim, Zia king of Sharupak? Is that still the same? Is he just saying he's still the same person? Okay. In, in the real historical narrative, and I'm not saying no existed, I'm saying in the actual records that we have, in the traditions that we have, yes, Udnapishtim, Atrahasis, Noah, uh, Bokika, uh, they're all the same individual, yes. But in Sitchin's version, he makes them the same as well. Unfortunately, it's it's a long time ago. I mean, it's, it's Zechariah Sitchin was Jewish, but in order to put out his put out his version of history, he had to even defy his own cultural heritages, his his uh, body of text. The, I'm talking about the Talmudic literature. The 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 the, the uh, there's a vast body, vast body of chronological material. The Book of Jasher is the main one. Huge body of chronological. There's over there's over 400 chrono markers in the Book of Jasher alone. Book of Jasher is phenomenal for a chronologist, but he had to ignore all this in order to put his theory together because none of it fit. Uh, he, uh, his, uh, I, I don't know, man. It's just, I'm, I'm so over, I'm so over Sitchin. It's a, you can take all of Sitchin's material and instead of, you know, when he's, when he says that something happened in 36,800, 36,800 uh, years at, uh, between these events, it's really easy. Just get a calculator out and divide it by 360. As soon as you divide it by 360, you'll have the actual amount of years between between those invasions or when that plague broke out after the founding of that city or that event took place and that war took place and they lost on the battlefield in the 32nd year of the reign of such and such, uh, 40,800 40, years uh, after such and such. If you just take all of Zechariah Sitchin's dates and divide them by 360, you basically have a perfect summation of, of Sumerian history. Yeah. Well, um, one last thing I wanted to ask you, because I don't, I don't have a lot of time, but I, I want to go over this is you mentioned, I, I thought this is so interesting that the simulation puts different civilizations here at different times. Like at one time it was the vapor canopy uh, civilization. Now it's us. Um, was it civilizations? Do we know before that or, or, and I mean, and how, how, I wanted to get more into the simulation, but I don't have enough time. I'm going to have to have you on again because I want to have a whole show just well, on that. Like, it's so interesting, you know? Well, yes, there, we have been made to survive different biospheres. This is why humans come in such great complexity and diversity. These different biospheres were, were basically initiated just to see if we could survive them and what was needed to add to the genome to, to make it more survivable. It's a Remember, if you follow me on my channel, all the UFO extraterrestrial activity, every bit of it is misinformation and the media is on it because the very elite themselves are perpetuating the deception because all true technology and superior superior technology, superior uh, race, whatever you want to call them, they're underground. They're not coming from the sky. Everything, all phenomena in the sky is misdirection. The true 
the true infrastructure, the one that keeps the technology, even though the surface world is going through resets, even though the surface world's getting wiped out in, 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 in lithospheric displacement, even though the surface world is deceived into thinking pole shifts actually happen when the entire stellosphere shifts 30 degrees and then and then earthquakes and tsunamis, all of this phenomena on the surface world is very convincing to those that are on the surface world. But the world underneath us is insulated and there could be cities and civilizations pancaked on top of each other going down so many different miles. There's far more real estate in the underworld than there is on the surface because we're living on a thin skin. Whether you think it's a globe or a flat disc, it doesn't matter. It's still a thin skin from the highest mountain to, to from the highest mountain in the Himalayas where you can't breathe to the, to the lowest depths of the Marianas Trench, where you also can't survive because of the pressure, is is still 12 miles, meaning the habitable zone is only about three miles. All the cities of the world, all the basic population dense areas fit within a three-mile band around, all over the world. That is, well, Now, when you take up the width of the world, no matter if it's a globe or a flat disk, it doesn't matter. When you take the actual width of that thin skin, that little three-mile habitable zone is so infantilely tiny and small. You can imagine if you just go straight down how many worlds there could be that we wouldn't even know about. That's amazing. I, I, I love the whole earth theory too. And that's, uh, I've always thought, but so what do you think? Do you think that you believe I mean, you read a lot of Charles Fort, Charles Fort, he was the father of the word 14. What do you think of the paranormal and UFOs? And do you think it's all a ruse or what? Yeah, well, I have I have a lot of I provide I provide a lot of evidence on my channel about UFOs. UFOs, you the media wants to perpetuate the idea that UFOs are vehicles and that they're occupied and and, and all that's good. But I've never seen evidence of that. Now there may be some te human technology that mimics UFOs and they've and they've they're occupied, but. Way before humans, way before humans could could do this, we had the exact same phenomena described in medieval and older texts when we had no aviation. So, this is what I this is what I believe, and this is what I promote on my channel. These these glowing orbs that are flying through the air, doing all these doing these things that defy physics, they do so because they're not physical objects. They are phenomena. Now, J Dreamers and others believe that, that they're like plasma phenomena, and they could be very well be right. I am not a scientist. I really don't know what plasma is. I, I'm a chronologist. I'm a historian. Now, but these things that defy physics and do all, all, all these deals, they, they, we have to judge them by what they do, not what we think they are. So, when we go through the historical record and we isolate all these things that Jacques Vallée and Otto Van Binder and so many of these early ufologists document, we don't find vehicles. We find range finders. We find, we find the outward manifestation of a technology of something that's being operated somewhere else. And it's honing in on its victims. And when it gets close to them, it opens up like an envelope and they disappear. It's pulling men and material straight out of our holography into somewhere else. This is what we see. This is also supported by the myths and traditions of when people see these will-o'-wisps, these glowing orbs going through the forest, and they get too close to them and pop, child disappears. Or a, hun or yeah. a hunter 
a hunter gets too close to one, it starts chasing him, and then it gets real big, and next thing you know, his family sees him vanish outside the cottage. We have to judge these phenomena by what by what they have been recorded to have done. And to me, that's a range finder. And to be a range finder, that means that somebody is on the outside of our, our holography looking into it. And because their technology is imperfect, they can see with a distance and they can use controls and get that light, which is going to be a dimensional overlap. Because if, because if that light contains the mathematics of the dimension that they're in, that means if they can get that light, if they can get their victim in that light, then that means that individual is no longer inside the mathematical construct that it was in priorly. It's now inside whatever mathematical construct is that light is governing that light. If, he, if that light can get over that, it can pull it right out of that mathematics into another. This is what I've promoted on my channel. This is all I can believe about UFOs. They don't act like vehicles and they don't behave like vehicles. And anytime there's mass human abductions, these things are seen. And anytime there's individual abductions, many times they have been documented. So I have to judge them by that. These have to be range finders from someone outside the holography that's pulling them out, out of the holosphere, the simulacrum itself. That makes sense. Now, what I wanted to run by you real quick was I interviewed this guy. His name's Stan Gordon, right? He's been researching UFOs forever. He tells a story about in the 70s about how when these people, they because he's had a UFO hotline where people call in and report cases to him. Then him and his team go out and investigate. So they go out and investigate. This guy tells this story that they go out and, and they see a UFO and a Bigfoot in a field. And I'm just shortening this for you. And the guy fires a tracer bullet at the Bigfoot and it just vanishes out of thin air. Then he told a similar story about a woman uh, was on her back porch. She heard someone going through her pop cans and uh, she sees a Bigfoot. She fired it and it disappears. I was thinking this could, could this be examples of the sim simulation? Okay. Uh, I also discussed this on my own channel. Cryptozoology Bigfoots, Yetis, Sasquatch, Abominable Snowmen, all this. Listen, we since the 1800s, there's been there there have been hunting parties looking for them. They've left tracks in the snow. We know they're there, and yet they vanish like this. Tracks have vanished in the middle of a snowfield. So again, I this is these are these are just these are just more pieces of the puzzle as to why I believe in simulation theory. But to that, that there can be dimensional overlaps where two different mathematical constructs can overlay. And when they do, the stronger arithmetic will allow denizens from it to pass into the weaker arithmetic. These are mathematical constructs that we exist within. But what led me to simulation theory was my research on calendars and timekeeping systems and basically putting together my lifelong project, which I call Chronicon. By the time I was finished with Chronicon and everything, all the mathematical anomalies that I had documented in, in the series of, of events that we call history, by the time I was finished, I was left with, with more questions than answers. I did the project because I thought it was going to give me a, a, a pretty good idea about all the mysteries of the ancient world. Now I can figure everything out. I got all this stuff. I, no one's ever put together a book like Chronicon. I'm not I'm not speaking boastfully, but you'll hear that from people on my own channel. I spent my life putting Chronicon together. It's it's massive. And I shows this math, beautiful mathematical construct that we call history. The arithmetic is too perfect. 
when the calendars fall on major events in human history, it's too perfect. And when we even when we even analyze the distances between major events in history in other in other dimensions, like phi and pi and curvature equations, we we get these beautiful beautiful additions to the construct. Doesn't make sense to me for calendars to do this, and yet. And yet we are told we li we're living in a Newtonian universe. Therefore, many of these events that I have documented could not possibly be true. Exoworlds, intruder planets, and different, different cataclysmic phenomena, they do not happen in nature with mathematical precision. Nothing acts like that. And yet this is what I find. And then when the year changes from 360 days to 365 days, all around the world at the same time as 713 B.C., which is very well documented in ancient times, there are still timelines that are operative that don't change. And that's impossible. And yet I can show it. I can show two different mathematical holographies running side by side, and we call them history. And events occurred on both timelines, but they can't. It's impossible. But I document it and I show it. So over and over and over and over, I'm having to tell my listeners, look, what I'm showing you can't be possible, can't be real. It's not true, and yet I'm showing you factually. Here it is from the historical record. Here's how you show it. Here's how here it is on a calculator. It's all perfect, but it can't be real. So the world we're living in. That's why one of my mantras for for archaics is our world is not what you think. I say this all the time in my videos because it's not. Nothing I discovered can be true. It's as simple as that. And yet I can show it all. So that's a paradox. Therefore, I must be living in something that. I just don't really have any frames of reference for the closest approximate approximation that I can come to to describe to you. My reality is that it's all simulated. This is a VR headset world. It's the only thing I can explain. I, I agree. With that said, um, I, I got to finish up. I got to do another show. But um, th thank you, Jason, so much. You're awesome, man. I love your stuff. And um, if you want to tell everybody where they can find you. And yeah, again, thank you. You're amazing. And I appreciate it, uh, Rob. Uh, just archaics.com. You can find everything on archaics.com. As a matter of fact, you'll probably get lost on my website. There's a lot to look at. So, that's it. Um, th thank you for doing this. And, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate it.